Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. In our latest Senate update, Democrat Drew Lippman and Republican Brian Wild discuss which major pieces of legislation are likely to see the sun next Congress and just how the nation's anger has motivated and stymied congressional activity. Has the GOP's philosophy as a party drastically changed since President Trump took office? Will this election actually be determined by policy issues? Will changing committee chairs fundamentally shift the focus of Congress? Drew and Brian answer these questions and more as we wait for the fallout from this midterm season. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Drew Littman, Policy Director. Prior to Brownstein, I served as Policy Director for Senator Barbara Boxer and as Senator Al Franken's Chief of Staff. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Brian Wild, also a policy director. Brian draws on his three decades of experience in Washington, D.C., including in the White House, Senate, House of Representatives, and the private sector. Today, we're talking about the Senate midterm elections. Brian, let's start out by talking about what some think is the most likely election scenario, where Democrats flip the House, but Republicans keep control of the Senate. If that occurs... Does President Trump attempt to triangulate? Can you think of a legislative initiative that could be passed by Congress and signed by the president in that scenario? Um, sure, Drew. First, I, I I think there's a there's a couple assumptions in there that I would I would question. One is is the Democrats taking the House, and I think that that's certainly the the favorite thing that everybody in D.C. likes to talk about. It, it, there's an opportunity for that to happen. I think it's sure that the the House Republicans are going to lose some seats. Uh, The majority is questionable. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the second assumption is that there is a strategic side to to Trump um, and legislation. (laughs) Um, So when you say triangulate, that seems to think that there's an actual effort for the White House to look at Congress and figure out a a strategic outcome. And and I don't think that's the case. I think that that this president uh, has shown a willingness to sign legislation uh, that he disagrees with. I think mm-hmm. that um, he has a history of uh, being loud and vocal with what he disagrees with uh, about the legislation while still signing it. And I, I think that'd be the case. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity um, should Nancy Pelosi or whomever the Democratic leader be become speaker um, for legislation to move. I think infrastructure is the most logical that jumps out. Um, it's a priority of the presidency mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. of the president. It's a it's a priority. Of, of Democrats, and there's certainly a, a base of Republicans that look to that, too. Um, the thing that's always held it back is, is there needs to be some revenue measure that moves with it to, mm-hmm. to, to backfill mm-hmm. the, the highway trust fund. I think Democrats are far more willing to raise taxes um, than, than Republicans are. So I, I actually think there's a greater likelihood that a big infrastructure bill moves with a Democratic majority. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's there's a handful of other items that that could go in there too. I think there's reorganization of of, of government, which seems to be something the White House is focused on. That I, I think, while Democrats might disagree with with some of it, I think that they agree that that there needs to be some restructuring too. And I I, I think you can see some some kind of movement mm-hmm. on the bureaucratic front. Mm-hmm. It's um, hard to picture well. the president being very invested in that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's more of an initiative that's coming out of Mick Mulvaney and OMB, but I think, and, and Vice President Pence, which, um, you know, he he was uh, championing uh, more efficient government when he was in the House. 
Uh, and I think it's, it's similarly, I think mm-hmm. it's something that the president would sign. Well, thanks. I think you've provided some genuine insights there. People talk about infrastructure, which I agree would be the thing most likely to move if anything could move, but they sometimes lose sight of the fact that a major infrastructure plan would have to be funded. And, and that's that's where the problem is. I think everyone's for putting more money into infrastructure. There's a lot of disagreement as to, uh, as to where that money ought to come from. Let me, let me ask you um, another question, more of a Senate-specific question. On the morning after the 2016 elections, despairing Democrats looked ahead to the 2018 Senate breakdown and thought Republicans could get 60 seats, given the races that are being played out in 2018. So, so no one today thinks Republicans will come away with 60 seats in the, in the, in the upcoming elections. In a Senate cycle in which fundamentals are on their side— Democrats defending many more seats, including a lot of seats in Trump states, um, a strong economy. What went wrong for Republicans? Why why has the goal become so much more modest? It's gone from, I think, a filibuster-proof majority to a bare majority. Well, I I, I think you you need to remind yourself of a couple factors. One, uh, folks were surprised that Republicans... Uh, maintain the majority. I think we assumptions were that we were going to lose it. So um, that's one factor. Two, I'm interested who you thought the nine Democrats were that were going to lose in order for us to get to 60. Um, it seems like a, a stretch. I, I, I do think, you know, elections are, are, are not national elections. Uh, even the presidency is not a national election. Um, because of the Electoral College, everything's regional, everything's state and, and or, or congressional. And, and I think national polls uh, make people assume things that, that are, are later proven to be untrue. And we learned that in the last three election cycles where the national polls were, were significantly off of, of where things are. So I'm not willing to say that, that Republicans uh, aren't going to gain seats uh, in the Senate and maybe gain some significant seats um, in the Senate this year. I, I think that, you know, you got to look at this state by state and 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 neighbor by neighbor and who's who's going to turn out. I I do think that the tone and tenor of the presidency has um, certainly hurt the Republican brand on a national level. I think that there's a lot of things Republicans should be proud of. The economy is amazing. You know, unemployment's low. GDP is is growing. Uh, GDP per capita is going up. Real wages are growing. These are all things that typically mean that that the the party in power should should do well. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know we're we're gonna. We've passed, you know, um, over 800 bills on a bipartisan basis in the House this year. Uh, we have 70 percent of government funded by the end of the fiscal year, which is the first time in at least 15 years that we've done that. Uh, but it all gets lost, uh, you know, in a 30-word uh, tweet. And and, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's certainly harmed us nationally. We'll see whether it's harmed these individual senators mm-hmm. or not and how branded to Trump they are, uh, but nationally, that you can see it in the polls. So, so a lot of this is a is a Trump factor. We're not really talking about the president himself. We're talking about him broadly, but more, you would say, stepping on the message where Republicans do have a positive message um, to to broadcast to people. It gets obscured by the stuff that the media is more likely to amplify. Um, and some of this may be um, adjusting to the 24-hour news cycle, adjusting to the fact that news comes out via Twitter, harder to communicate for either side, I think, complex legislative accomplishments. I mean, I felt this way when Democrats uh, passed the Affordable Care Act 
I was working on the Hill 2009. I was working for Senator Franken. Communicating why it would be good for people was just impossible. It was way too big and complicated. Communicating or telling a story about why it might be horrible, well, that was really easy. And, and so in a way, it's the party that's not responsible for actually making these things work that has a harder time. They can rack up accomplishments, but it's much harder to communicate to people a message to people. I agree. I mean, anger, is, anger seems to be the, the, the best political motivator these years. I mean, going back similarly, I, I worked for the time Minority Leader Boehner when we were in the House uh, in 2009, 2010, going into the what became that Republican wave, and that was a that was a wave of anger. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that the Tea Party movement that really uh, brought Republicans into control back in 2010 was I, I would love to say it was the great messaging that we had as Republicans in our agenda, but it, it wasn't an endorsement of the Republican agenda. It was it was a complete um, anger on the process that the Democrats had used to pass mm-hmm. ACA. Interesting, um, and I think you're seeing a, a similar anger now in how government is being. I don't know if it's how government's being run, but certainly how government's being communicated. Interesting. Well, let me let me continue with you in that vein, if I can. Republicans in the House and Senate can argue that they've kept the faith with the conservative base, which I think is is uh, what, part of what you're saying. But the party stands on issues like immigration, guns, health insurance coverage, climate change, and gay marriage are arguably minority positions today and are highly unpopular, especially with young voters. If a blue wave swamps Congress, does the Republican Party rethink its positions on some of these key issues? And I'm, I'm thinking here also about the 2012 report that the Republican National Committee did after that election under the leadership of Reince Priebus. They issued a, an analysis that was referred to as the autopsy, which suggested that the party might want to acknowledge changing demographics, acknowledge a changing population, and maybe make some shifts accordingly in a business-friendly way from their point of view. One, I, the Republican Party, is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a party of a philosophy, and there's an actual um, uh, idea behind it. We're, we're not a populist party. We're not a party that, that um, has moved our... Um, our platform uh, easily. Uh, our symbol's an elephant for a reason. Um, we are slow and remember things for a long, long time. And it, it takes decades, um, typically, for us to absorb new ideas and, and to move on. So I, I don't think there's going to be any drastic shift. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be shocked. Um, I think you, you need to remind yourselves that, that President Trump himself has not been a member of the Republican Party for that long. I, I'm sure I've been a member of the Republican Party for longer than he has. No doubt. Um, so, I, so there is there's there's some of this that is a a Trump populist philosophy, and there's some of this that is the actual GOP platform philosophy. Um, and I think we still have to kind of come to grips with with how those two align and, and how they can work together. Um, I'll also say specifically on immigration, it's an issue that's divided the Republican Party for a long time mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. will continue to do mm-hmm. so. Um, there's not a, a stance within our platform that says, you know, we believe um, that we should have open borders or we believe that we should not. Um, it's a it's a nuanced mm-hmm. thing within the Republicans. And I think if there's one area that we can reach out to younger voters, um, it would be on on the immigration side of things. Mm-hmm. And I, would, I, I personally would hope to see a pivot there. Yeah. Um, some of those other issues, I mean, I think gay marriage, we've, we've moved on from. Um, I think guns will continue to be a major part. Um, yeah. But I don't see a big philosophical change in, in, in who we are. 
Um, I do think that what you would see if, if, if we lose is, is you'll see a change in, in the process side of things and what we think of as good government and mm-hmm. how to run good government. And I'm going to get to process in the Senate um, in a minute, but just to offer a, a Democratic point of view on this, I, I recently went back and looked at the Gallup polling organization's headlines on their website, and what I see is... Uh, nearly two-thirds of Americans want Roe versus Wade to stand. Majority want government to ensure health care coverage. I'm just reading their, their headlines. Affordable Care Act gains majority approval for the first time. Record high 75% of Americans say immigration is a good thing. Americans want government to do more on environment. U.S. preference for stricter gun laws highest since 1993. And labor union approval steady at 15-year high. Americans say U.S.-China tariffs more harmful than helpful. I think one thing that that we all take for granted here in inside the beltway and and Americans broadly outside the beltway is that political races are about personalities or possibly about character um, and other sort of ineffable things like that. I wonder if it's if this election will make us rethink that if this election will be to a greater degree than people realize about policy positions. People have come to like the Affordable Care Act. They worry about um, whether they can get coverage if they have pre-existing conditions, to take an example. People seem to worry about uh, the, 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 um, the dreamers who are here in this country who might get ejected. Um, the school shootings have produced uh, a surge in activism, which may not translate into votes. We'll have to see. But it, but it seems to me that even as we're all obsessed, and I know I am, with Trump and his personality and how odd he is, the schism between the parties on issues is more dramatic than it ever was or clearer than than it ever was. And in a lot of ways, this could be an election that's actually being fought out over policy positions, which in the long run, I think, would be a healthy thing. I'm not saying that that will mean Republicans reconsidering anything, but I think— if people are voting because they think policies are good or bad, as opposed to, well, I really like this guy or I don't like this guy, I mean, I'd rather have them voting on policies. Well, as as both of us being policy directors, I, I, I would love an actual debate on policies. I, I would love to, ha- to, to have an election decided on, on how uh, people believe on a stance. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. I mm-hmm. think that this is a referendum against Trump on the Democratic side and a referendum in support of Trump on the Republican side. And this is a turnout um, election. And each base is trying to energize um, and, and, and goose their voters to show up as, as much and as, as they can right now. And I, I, I think there's very little discussion about issues. I mean, here it is. We okay. had the largest uh, tax reform bill in the last 30 years uh, pass. Um, I've seen some Democrats run negative ads That's against right. it, but I haven't seen a lot of Republicans running positive ads for it. And that should be the thing if you're going to have an issues-based race that, that you would run on. So this is – I still think a, it's an election about uh, anger and it's an election about um, your base and each side's just reaching down and, and, and trying, to, trying to get them to turn out. I think – I substantially agree with what you're saying. I think, though, that I saw that the, that the dominant topic in Democratic candidates' ads in the cycle is health care. It's not Trump. So so Trump is animating people for sure, but there is a substantive element um, as well. But let me switch. You mentioned process, and process is, is sort of the big hidden issue, I think, in Washington, especially in the Senate. I'm wondering if Republicans keep the House and Senate with small majorities, 
uh, the Senate in particular, of course, do they get rid of the filibuster so that they can push through as many bills as possible in the second half of President Trump's first term? And before you answer, let me uh, remind people who are listening that that's what the Democrats did with judicial nominees, just not the Supreme Court, in President Obama's second term. They could see that Republicans were going to block nominees, were going to, Democrats wouldn't get to a 60-vote threshold. So technically they changed the precedent, not the rule, but that enabled Democrats to get a lot of Obama judge nominees through at the end. I'm wondering if Republicans look at the legislative filibuster when they come back and think maybe, you know, we, we shouldn't be holding things up for a 60-vote threshold. We've got the Senate, we've got the House, may not have, have them much longer. Let's get through as much stuff as we can. What do you think? Uh, well, you're a former Senate staffer. Mm-hmm. I'm a former Senate staffer. I think that would be the death of the Senate. Um, mm. I, I, it, it's been talked about for a long time. I think that from a Republican standpoint, we've often thought that that's more likely what the Democrats would do. The Democrats are the ones that changed the 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 filibuster threshold on nominees, um, and we kind of think that the Democrats are probably more likely to change the filibuster threshold on legislation as well. Um, That being said, I mean, the Senate of today, you know, the the tone and tenor of the Senate is significantly different than it's been as well. Um, So my knee-jerk reaction is no. Mm -hmm. I I don't think that they would do that. I I, I can't imagine Leader McConnell doing it. Um, And I'll give you a couple reasons beyond just the the precedent of it being the Senate. I think that... um, they're running through a whole bunch of nominees. I think uh, issue number one is is to reshape the courts, and it's to reshape um, the the judicial branch. And they've done a, a uh, significant job in just two years. Um, and and I think that will be the focus again for the next two years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and they already don't have a filibuster on that, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so they don't need that. And I think second is we don't, as Republicans, have a robust legislative agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the president's. Outside of a border wall, the president's largely accomplished um, what he set out to accomplish um, now. And so um, with a slim majority in the House, um, where House Republicans haven't played well with each other, um, I think the Senate, when you go up and you talk to them, are, are highly sus- suspect uh, or doubtful that, that the House can, can pass a bill um, over there either. So I just don't think that this two-year window would be the two-year window that that would happen. Um, I think if there was a a major Republican uh, legislative idea out there that we really wanted to pass, it'd be more likely. But we couldn't even send to the Senate uh, an an ACA repeal bill. Um, So I I can't imagine that that they'll they'll do it. I think that's a that's a very sophisticated response. Um, I'm a very sophisticated I'm lear- person. I'm, lear- I'm learning from listening to you. Thank you. <laughs> but but let me continue and let me play on something that you said uh, rather dramatic. You said death of the Senate when I talked about possibly eliminating the filibuster. Let's let's continue in that vein a little bit because whoever is in control of the Senate in the next Congress, the Senate's going to look different. With the passing of Senators Cochran chairman of the Appropriations Committee, and legendary Senator McCain, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, the imminent retirements of Senators Corker, Flake, and Hatch. The Republican caucus will lose some of its most experienced dealmakers. I want to emphasize dealmakers, not just senators. I mean, Hatch and Kennedy were legendary for working together back in the day. And the center of gravity of the caucus will shift to the right. 
how do these departures affect prospects for bipartisanship in the future? And, and likewise, if Republicans were to have their dream scenario and wipe out the 10 Senate Democrats who are running for re-election in states that Trump won in 2016, what, how different will the Democratic caucus be? And maybe you'd like me to answer that part of it. But let's talk about these Republican departures, because, because Democrats have no retirements on their side. So we don't know how the Democratic caucus will look different, but we do know about these changes for the Republicans. So I, I'm actually excited about about the Republicans in the Senate. I, I think that the class that got elected in 2016, in many cases, the, the class that got reelected in 2016 is, is, is the heart of, of the Republicans in the Senate. I think you have a series of very um, intelligent, policy-driven um, versus uh, uh, partisan-driven Republicans over there. I, I think of my former boss, Senator Toomey, Senator Portman. You got Senator Rubio, freshman Senator Todd Young. And then you have, you know, Senator Grassley, is, who's been chairman of three different committees, I think, at this time. You've got uh, Senator Blunt. Um, I think we have a, a, our core group of dealmakers now is the class that will now be the class of 2022. And, 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 and I hope that we start to see some of those people emerge higher up in the Senate leadership so that we don't start to suffer a, 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 some of the things that Democrats have suffered, are suffering in the House right now of having um, your leaders be 20 years senior to, to the majority of their members. So I, I actually like that group. Um, I think it is a move to the right, but I, I think it's a it's also a move to, to practical deal makers that are pretty intelligent legislators. Well, that's a hopeful answer. It, it's interesting. When I went back to the Hill to work for Franken in 2009, I was very impressed by the 06 and 08 classes of Democrats. Those were big Democrat sort of surge years. So you got Sheldon Whitehouse and Jeff Merkley and the Udalls, and they were almost more academic in their approach to issues. They really wanted to learn. They were very prepared. When I had worked in the Senate earlier, I saw a lot of senators, senior senators. I'm talking Democrats now because I was watching them much more closely than the Republicans. Man, they just went through the motions. Clearly, they had never seen their briefing books, but they acted senatorial. Their voters seemed to be satisfied, but they weren't really working that hard. Uh, with the newer generation... And maybe it's just that there's more 24-hour scrutiny on folks. Um, senators can't behave, you know, they can't carry on the way uh, some senators used to. But, but I was also impressed. And these younger senators tended to be liberal, but I think they had deal-making instincts. So, so I, I want to share your hopefulness that this new generation of senators can work together more productively. Republicans have term limits for committee chairs, as we know. If Republicans keep the Senate, which chair switch, if you can identify one, do you expect would have the most dramatic effect? And I'll talk about uh, Democrats take the Senate. Well, I, I think that Senator Grassley has a decision to make, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. who is um, you know, currently uh, chair of the Judiciary Committee um, and has uh, two years remaining of his seniority to take over the chairmanship of the Finance mm -hmm. Committee. If he does not move to finance and stays at Judiciary Committee, I, I think then, then you'll see the, the, the greatest switch, because then you'll see Senator Crapo uh, move over. To from um, banking to finance. From banking to finance. You see Senator Toomey move up to, to chair banking. And mm -hmm. I think both of those moves uh, would have a dramatic change on those two committees. Interesting. Um, I think that if, if Grassley decides to, to move over to finance, which is probably more likely after this um, circus of the <laughs> Supreme Court, uh, he will have um, 
I think that the, the changes are, are a lot less less dramatic there. Interesting. I, I uh, looking at what would happen if Democrats take over. I would also identify banking um, because because shifting from from Mike Crapo, who does work in a bipartisan manner, uh, to Sherrod Brown, I think is the biggest change. Partly because the repeal of Dodd Frank is still fairly fresh and can be theoretically undone or modified. And, and I think that's what Brown's instinct would be. So in terms of concrete legislative results, I think banking is where you'd see immediately see the biggest change. And and of note, if, if that were to be the case, I mean, then since Senator Brown's up, he would he would have six full years before his next reelection and be able to pivot back to his progressive roots. Well said. I don't think he pivoted very far away from them. But, <laughs> but, and, and, you know, he's rumored to be one of the 11 Senate Democrats who are running for president um, as well. But, of course, can't, can't do that now while he's in his reelection cycle. I think more generally, oversight will come to dominate uh, committee activities. So on a committee like um, Homeland Security, which is chaired by uh, Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin now, it's not the most visible committee. But with a Republican president, if Claire McCaskill, the ranking Democrat, is reelected and and becomes the chair, um, that is a committee that would I I assume would become hyperactive. I think her instincts also McCaskill's instincts would be to be aggressive. So there could be committees that we don't observe as closely now that could come to the fore in a Democratic Senate, again, a Democratic Senate with a Republican president. What folks are telling me, we've talked about potential House committee switches, where you could have some very dramatic switches if Democrats flip the House. Um, And oversight committees and subcommittees will be the ranking positions that no Republican wants. Because when it's your own presidency, you'd rather not be in charge of either leading or pushing back against those kinds of hearings, if they're going to be run by aggressive Democrats, it's just it's a that becomes a quite a thankless job. I'll just add. Yes. I, I mean, I think on, on the on the House side, I, I, in addition to that, should the Democrats take the, take the House, I, I agree. I think they'd focus on oversight. I think that becomes really an, an era of subpoenas and hearings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's driven from two th- two angles. I think there's obviously a partisan angle and and a feeling that 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 oversight has been. Uh, ball has been dropped by the Republicans in the last two years. Um, but but two, I, I think the reality is that the Democrats aren't going to be capable of passing a whole bunch of legislation for either sure. or, or making a whole bunch of law. For so sure. um, it's much more productive for them to do oversight. I quite agree. That, that That's what they've got. And I think in the more likely scenario of, of Democrats taking the House and not certain, as you said, um, um, since they can't really legislate effectively, what is there to do but oversight? And and I'll just I'll, I'll also note, and not to belabor this point, but I think it's more uh, more than just oversight of the administration, more than just oversight of the White House. I, I think that you know that there is a general feeling that I pick up, and you're a Democrat, but that uh, there's concern over the, about the size of companies. Um, there's concern about corporate greed at this moment, and and the disparity, the pay gap, and all of those things. And and I think that that there's an, a lot of opportunity for the Democrats to to bring up a lot of uh, CEOs and a, and a lot of general counsels and ask some very difficult questions. Oversight of the economy, yeah. generally, in other words. I think one thing that you could see if if Democrats control the Senate, and we agree I, that's a less likely scenario, is with so many Democrats looking at running for president, you could get. Hearings, maybe even markups of bills 
that they recognize can't get enacted, but that would form part of the Democratic platform. So, for example, you could get the Health Committee considering Medicare for all, not because they think they're going to enact it while President Donald Trump is in the White House, but because they really want to play out the idea. They want to understand how it works and doesn't work, and they want the public to see that this is something that Democrats would push. I think you could see that in almost every committee. So it might look quixotic to some people, but if you know that the background is that the people advocating these positions are running for president, it starts to make a little more sense. Because we need to remind ourselves that the two-year presidential election cycle begins in January. Oh, heck yeah. Um, Last question, exit question. Uh, The morning after Election Day 2018, what is it you're going to see in the newspaper in terms of the results that shocks you the most? What Senate upset, or maybe not upset, is going to be the most shocking? Um... I think the biggest upset that I, I could happen is I think that Senator Heller uh, remains a senator wow. um, and, and gets reelected. I think that, that you know, Nevada, everybody's, a, a lot of people in D.C. Have, have written Senator Heller off. And, and certainly national polls tend to say if there's one Republican that's going to lose, it's going to be him. Um, I mean, I think that's a ground game state. And I think that, you know, he's invested in the right way. So I, I, and I think that the Democrats didn't get the best possible candidate that they could have had. So I, I think my upset is, is going to be that, that Senator Heller gets reelected. Well, Democrats are high on, on Jackie Rosen. Um, my upset prediction would be that Beto O'Rourke beats Ted Cruz in Texas. And this may be just because I'm wishing for it so much that <laughs> I've, I left objectivity far behind. But O'Rourke is an exciting, dynamic candidate. Democrats are looking for change in Texas. Um, Few people realize that Texas became a majority-minority state, I think, around 2005. So a lot of those those newer Texans are not old enough to vote. Um, But the day is going to come. So I will be pulling for O'Rourke and don't expect to know the result by the time I go to sleep on election night in 2018. Thank you very much, Brian Wild. This has been another Brownstein podcast on the Senate and the midterm elections. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.